Thanks for that, Juliana. Uh, welcome to Grace Point. If I haven't met you before, it's a pleasure to have you join us. Uh, just to let you guys know, uh, next week, uh, Dr. John McLean will be speaking. He's one of our faculty here at Christ College, uh, so we look forward to welcoming him. Uh, so that will be next week, and that will bring a conclusion, really, to our I Believe series. Uh, and then we'll start the book of Romans the, uh, the week after that, which I'm actually looking forward to. Let me pray for us. Gracious God, we do thank you that you speak in and through your word. We do want to pray right now as we open up the Bible that you might be so gracious as to speak to us, uh, grant us understanding so that more and more we might find our longings and our desires met in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> uh, as most of you know, over the last two months, uh, we have been working through the Apostles' Creed, which is actually a summary of the Christian faith uh, as taught by the first disciples of Jesus. And we've been looking at what Christians believe, uh, but not just what we believe, but how these truths actually affect our lives, how these truths uh, are an anchor for our souls, how they actually help us navigate uh, the challenges of life, certainly if you're a disciple of Jesus. And I've said this in the last few weeks, when we say, I believe, our believing can either be attached or they can be detached, which, because anyone can say, I believe, right? Uh, we personally own the truth such that it changes and affects our lives, or we know about it and it has no effect in our lives. And so belief actually always works this way as you think about the things you believe. All of you here, you believe in gravity, which is why you're not going to walk off a cliff. That's an attached belief. You own it. You live your life by it. <clears throat> but I also know that people in this room, you believe that exercise and healthy eating is a good thing. But Popo doesn't believe it. But you're a couch potato and a junk food addict. Well, that's a detached belief, isn't it? We know something, but it's not a truth that actually affects our lives. Now, what we're going to do this week is we're going to move into the fourth part of the creed. Uh, in your outlines over there, in your order of services, you'll see it. It says, I believe in the church. You see it there? <coughs> the creed actually has four parts. Uh, we've done that in the last few weeks. We go from believing in God the Father, the creator of the world, who sends his son Jesus to save. We've got, we believe in God the Son uh, and his saving work in our lives by dying on the cross. And last week, uh, Popo actually preached, Andrew actually preached for us, we believe in God the Holy Spirit, uh, who comes and applies the saving work of Jesus in our lives, who brings new life, change, and transformation. Now this week, we're looking at that line, which says, I believe in the church. Now, it's a kind of a strange thing to say, I believe in the church. Uh, it's not a strange thing if you're a follower of Jesus to say, I believe in God the Father who sends, God the Son who saves God, the Holy Spirit, who transforms our lives. But it's a very strange thing to say, I believe in the church. You see the line over there? I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins. Now, for many people, Christian and non-Christian, this line is a very strange line. Secular culture does not believe in the church. In fact, secular culture actually distrusts the church. And that's understandable given, you know, what's happened in the last, you know, 40, 50 years uh, the historical failure of the church in not protecting the most vulnerable in culture and society, women and children, the failure of the church in not calling into account those who have perpetuated power, abuse in the church, who have preyed on others, the failure of the church in, in not speaking out on issues of justice and mercy. And in some places of the world, is the reason why racism has flourished. Uh, this week I was reading uh, Tim Keller's biography, uh, and the first church he pastored was in the deep south of the U.S., Virginia. And his biographer actually writes, 
Keller marveled at his little church's theological unity around the Westminster Confession of Faith. In other words, <coughs> here was a church that's orthodox in his belief, Bible-believing church. But then he said, he, uh, the biographer writes, however, most of the church members, they were Presbyterian far longer than he had. Their unity, however, did not extend to their views on racism. Interesting, isn't it? You can be Bible-believing, but racist towards people of color, Right? Uh, and I never knew this. I was reading his biography. As I read his biography, I never realized this. But, you know, in 1967, it was only in 1967 in Virginia, the southern states, um, it was only then that interracial marriages, you know, it were banned until 1967. It was illegal to marry interracially. That's how deep racism was. Now, we don't experience that, but in many parts of the world, that's true. And so the reality is that the church has a really bad rap in culture, but maybe... You find it hard to believe in the church as well, uh, even as a Christian, because of your personal experience of church. It's left a personal bad taste in your mouth. Maybe you've been on the receiving end of hurt and grief, or maybe someone has taken advantage of you in the church, or maybe you have come and you have felt judged and condemned. And so it's actually hard for, for you to believe in the church. And that's why there are Christian people who many Christian people we know, who have simply given up on the church. And you may feel like that as well. Uh, there's a move in culture and society today to what they call deconstruct your faith and deconstruct your church. Now, what I want to do with you this morning is to not do that, but to go back to the Bible. What I want to do is take a step back and unpack what the Bible says uh, when the Bible speaks of the church and what it means for you and I, certainly if you're a follower of Jesus or you're an outsider looking in, what it means to say, I believe in the church. So that's what I want to do with you this morning. Uh, so really quickly, is Daniel outlines the first thing, the church, what it's not, right? Because many things come to mind when people hear the word church, right? Some people think church is a building. Uh, we used to meet down the road here, you know, in that nice Burwood Presbyterian church building with the stained glass windows. Uh, and every so often, you know, when I was working down there and when we were meeting down there during the week, you know, people would knock on the door of the church building and say, can we have a look inside the church? Because it's beautiful, it's got stained glass, they take pictures and then they would leave and they say to me, this is such a beautiful church. And so some people think church equals building. Uh, sometimes uh, the word is used to speak of a Christian denomination or institution, oh, you belong to the Anglican church or you belong to the Presbyterian church. Sometimes it's used to speak of the kind of school people actually go to. Oh, Danielle, you go to a church school. <laughs> or <clears throat> sometimes it's used to speak of the kind of work people do. Like uh, Andrew and Abigail over there, uh, they're training for Christian work. And some so people will say, oh, they're, they're going to do church work one day. Very broad word, right? Now, I want to say to you, it's not a building. It's not a denomination. <clears throat> it's not a religious work. It's not even a religious school. So then the question is, what is the church? Okay, okay so here it is in your outline, uh, a couple of points over there. Here's the first thing. The church is an actual gathering of people. Okay? That's what it is. And that's the way the word is used in the Bible. It isn't used to speak of buildings or religious work or institutions or denominations. It's actually used to speak of an actual gathering of people. And it is really important to understand this. The word church is not a religious word. It's just the word for gathering. Uh, certainly in the New Testament, um, in, in your Bible, it was the everyday word people used to speak of any kind of meeting, legal gatherings, writing crowds, you know, uh, it wasn't a special word. So where people gather, you have a church. 
Now, Acts 19 is probably the, the clearest example. Uh, we're not going to look at everything, but I'm going to just point a few things out to you, Acts 19. <clears throat> it's used three times in Acts 19 uh, to speak of crowds gathering. And, and in the first scene, you've got an angry crowd, uh, a, a mob that's rioting that gathers or churches together. Now, this is the background to Acts 19. Paul uh, is in the great city of Ephesus. He's doing good ministry in the city of Ephesus. He's making Jesus known. He's been teaching the Bible for two years. Uh, people have been healed. People have been converted, uh, coming to faith in Jesus. And, and we know from Acts 19, what's actually happening is the, the good news of Jesus is starting to impact the city. It's starting to impact culture and society because people's lives are changing. And what happens is, as that is happening, opposition then starts to arise. Uh, and we read in Acts 19, Demetrius, the silversmith, and he makes money basically from he makes silver shrines of Artemis, basically the idols that uh, people in the city of Ephesus worship. Well, he's not a happy man because what's happening is over the course of two years, he starts to lose money, okay? Because what happens is when people get converted to Jesus, they start worshiping at the shrine of Artemis. So what does he do? He stirs up trouble. Uh, he starts a riot. That's what we read. He starts a riot. And you read that in verse 29. So Acts 19 verse 29 the whole city is in uproar. They grab hold of Gaius and Aristarchus, that is Paul's mates. They rush as a group into the theater, and there's a riot happening. Now, we read in verse 32. I'm going to read this out for us. The assembly was in confusion. The church was in, a fusion, in, in confusion. The gathering was in confusion. That's the word church, right? The mob was in confusion. Uh, and so that's what's happening. <clears throat> it's used to speak of an angry mob. Then in verse 39, the authorities appear, city clerk appears, and he tries to calm the crowds, right? And this is what he says in verse 39, if there is any fur anything further you want to bring up, if there's a charge against these men, he says it must be settled in a legal assembly, uh, in a legal church, same word is used, in a legal gathering, not this illegal writing gathering, Okay. So he says, if, the, if, there's a, if there's a problem, bring it to a legal gathering. So that's how the church is used. And then right at the end, Acts 19, verse 41, it says, after he said this, he dismissed the assembly. He dismissed the church. He closed the meeting, okay? So you notice the word is not a religious word. It's just used of any gathering of people. Uh, so the church in the language of the Bible is basically an assembly, a gathering of people. It doesn't have to be religious, uh, at school, when you gather in the hall, it's a, it's a gathering of students. It's a church of students, right? Uh, on the sporting field, when you meet with your team, right? It's a church of soccer players. Some of you after church, right? I know some of you, you go play darts down the road in the pub. Well, that's a church of dart players. Or maybe you go with Jaden. Jaden always rounds out a group. They go do karaoke down the road as well. Well, that's a church of karaoke people who love to sing 80s songs. But... <laughs> Can you actually see that, right? People church all the time. And where people gather, you have a church. And so that raises the question, doesn't it? What makes the Christian church church? Or what makes the Christian gathering any different from all the other gatherings around us? Because people are churching all the time, around sport, around their hobbies, their interests, uh, <coughs> around theater, around birthdays, around movies. So here's the second thing. It's there in your outline. The church for us, as followers of Jesus, is a gathering that God has, has gathered. 
God has gathered this gathering through Jesus and His saving work. That's what makes the Christian church different. God Himself does the gathering, and He gathers through Jesus and His saving work. Now, gathering people, right, is actually not an unusual thing. Okay? Gathering people is not an unusual thing. You guys do it all the time. Uh, it happens all the time. Uh, maybe you, you, you know, you've, you've been involved in startups, business startups, running and growing a business. It's nothing more than gathering people who have certain skills, who've got the same drive that you have, right, as an owner maybe, to build the business. That's what startups do. They recruit, they gather people who share similar values, ethos, work ethic, a vision for the future, and they gather those kinds of people, okay? Uh, they're churching people. Uh, if you're an employee, some of you I know, you've looked for work in the past, uh, you apply for work, there's an interview process, and in the interview process, what happens? You compete with others, don't you? Well, you know, it's actually a gathering process because they're sorting out applicants to see who will best fit this company, who has the best skills to do the job, right? That reflects the values of the company. Now, the same holds true, isn't it, in the world of academia and sports. The HSC is actually a gathering process by the universities. Uh, the universities, they set the ATAR, they gather those they think are fit enough to do certain courses, and then they gather them into those courses. In sport, uh, tryouts are the gathering process. The NBA draft each year, right? Sporting teams, they, they send out spotters to look at the local games. They try out seasons where uh, uh, you know, uh, players are either included or excluded, and then a the sorting takes place. And what happens with gatherings all around us is they gather, they always gather the best. And they always exclude those they think won't make it or aren't good enough. Uh, it's, it's, this, it's the same holds true, you know, of uh, countries and nations. Why have politicians, you know, not just our politicians, why do we close our borders? Because we only want to gather and include those who, think, uh, who we think are worth actually having in our country. Uh, we want to only bring those who have value to the economy, the potential to contribute, those who fit into our cultural mold. So has it ever occurred to you that the general principle in everywhere, by the way, the general principle when it comes to gathering people in every sphere of life, academia, the sporting field, business, the workplace, in every field of life, we only gather together those who are good enough. Isn't that interesting? We only gather people who are good enough, whose performance meets our standards, who have something to offer, they bring something to the table, they have potential. And so this is how the world operates. You want to be part of our church? Well, you want to be part of this company, this sporting team, this school, right? This university, this club. You want to be part of this board? Well, you've got to be good enough. Your performance has to meet our standards. You, have, you need to have something to offer. And so, has it ever occurred to you that the world gathers and will only include you on the basis of your works? Your performance. That's how the world operates, okay? Now, this is where... The Christian church is different. And so if you look in your outlines, the world gathers on the principle of work and performance, but God gathers, notice, very differently. God gathers on the principle of grace. God gathers on the principle of grace. Uh, and that's why Juliana read Ephesians 2, verse 12 to verse 13, uh, 22 for us. Uh, but if you look at Ephesians 2, verse 12, in your Bibles, maybe you want to turn with me and have a look at that very short passage. I'm going to look at a, a few pieces in Ephesians 2. But Ephesians 2 verse 12, if you notice with me, or maybe look uh, at the person's Bible next to you, even if you don't know them, I'm pretty sure they're happy to share with you. Paul actually says, God is gathering people together, notice, through Jesus' work. This is verse 12 and verse 13. 
First, he says, you and I, we were not part of this gathering called the church. And God now gathers, and he's using the language of the Old Testament, he gathers through Jesus. And so, uh, verse 12, he says, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. You didn't know Jesus, excluded from the citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenant of promise, without hope, without God in the world. That's basically another way of saying you weren't part of the people of God, right? But now, verse 13, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away on the outside, excluded, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. God is gathering a new people, a new community. He's bringing people together. He's including them. And how is He doing it? Not by your good works, not by your morality, not by your performance. Notice, by the blood of Christ. In Christ Jesus, by the blood of Jesus. Notice, they are not gathered because they're good enough or because they're religious or moral or because they've kept the Ten Commandments, not even because of the color of their skin. They are welcome in because Jesus died for them. You see there? The entry fee into a church community is free because Jesus paid for it all. It's good to remember that. His death on the cross, belonging, being known, and being loved in the church is never based on your performance, your good works, your morality. It's because someone has made it possible for you to belong, be known, and be loved in the Christian church. And then come down, all the way down to verse 19, verse 22. Have a look at what it says. Uh, you then have a picture of the gathering, a picture of the church, uh, or the church God is gathering. And it says, consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, fellow citizens now with God's people also members of his household, members of his family, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together. In him, the people are joined together. They rise up to become a holy temple, a place where God dwells by his spirit. So what is God doing? True and in the church, he's gathering foreigners, refugees, people without citizenship, people who belong to other nations. Notice it crosses cultural boundaries. God is gathering strangers, those without a home, those who need a place of refuge, those on the outside, people who are not citizens. He's bringing and making them part of the family, right? Giving them refuge and the status of citizenship, club membership. The Bible is actually saying He's giving them a place to belong, a place where they can be known, a place where they can be loved, a place of security. And, and, And again, notice it's made possible because of Jesus, the cornerstone. He is what connects those whom God has actually gathered. He's what they share. In fact, they are standing together on Him and His work. They are joined to Him, and because they're joined to Him, guess what? They're joined to each other. Did you hear that? Because they're joined to Jesus who has saved them, they are now joined to each other. They are what we call in fellowship with each other. Uh, in the words of the creed that you see on the first, uh, the top of your outlines, they are in communion with each other. That's what communion means, right? To be in fellowship with each other. That's what it means when we say, I believe in the communion of the saints. Uh, the saints in the Bible are not some special category of Christians who have died, right? Like the in, you know, that we pray to. It's used to speak of all Christians, The Bible speaks of all Christians as saints. Romans 12 verse 13, one of many, contribute to the needs of the saints, right? Provide for for those in need in your church community. 
uh, or 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 12. Paul says to the church of God that's in the city of Corinth, uh, to people get, uh, uh, gathered in the city of Corinth, set apart in Jesus. And then he says, call to be saints with others in every place who trust in the Lord Jesus, right? So who are the saints? The saints are basically men and women in the church who trust Jesus. And then in Ephesians 6, you know, Paul actually encourages us to pray, Ephesians 6 verse 18, and he actually says, pray not to the saints, he says, for all the saints. Pray for each other. Pray for God's people. Pray for other Christians. And so, to say, I believe in the communion of saints is to say, I believe in the fellowship we share because of Jesus who saved you and who saved me, who's made me part of this church community. This is what unites our differences across culture and language group, across differences and preferences. In fact, this is what crushes our hostility towards each other. Jesus and His saving work for me and for you. We belong to Jesus, and because we belong to Him, it means we belong to each other. I believe in the communion of the saints. That's what it means. But here's the third thing about the church this morning. The Christian church is both a spiritual and an actual physical gathering God has gathered through Jesus. It's both spiritual and actual physical gathering. Uh, And that's why Juliana read uh, 1 Peter 2. So, Move with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter 2. This is probably the last uh, passage we'll look at uh, this morning. 1 Peter 2, verse 4 to verse 6, what was read for us. Uh, And notice, like Paul, how Peter describes what God is doing. He says, as you come to Him, right, the living stone, Jesus, the living stone, rejected by humans, chosen by God, precious to Him, (coughs) he says, notice, you also, like living stones, right, you are the smaller stones, you are being built into a what? into a spiritual house, a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, a people set apart, offering spiritual sacrifices to God through the Lord Jesus, okay? Now, notice what God is doing. God is building something through Jesus, the living stone, the cornerstone. He's building what? A spiritual house, a spiritual family. That's what He's doing. Uh, And the spiritual family is made up of not the four walls of this building, not uh, bricks and stones. It's made up of people, living stones, you and me. What is the material God is using to build this spiritual house? People, you and I. He takes us and He brings us together to build His spiritual house. Now, I want you to notice, the living stone, they don't come to Jesus, the living stone, to be individual stones, okay? To be by themselves, to live in isolation, you know? Just me, myself, and God, right? No. Notice, the living stones come to Jesus the living stone, to be built together with others to be His spiritual house. And so the first thing I want to say to you this morning is that there is no such thing as a churchless Christian. Did you hear that? There is no such thing as a churchless Christian. Uh, There's no such thing as a churchless Christian because when you trust in Jesus, you become part of the spiritual house. You are already part of the spiritual house if you trust in Jesus. That's what we mean when we say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. You see, that's a, the, we, we affirm that in a creed. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. The word holy means set apart, taken out to belong. And so you are holy. You've been taken out to belong to this spiritual family, right? The word Catholic, uh, the problem is that every time we hear the word Catholic, we think Roman Catholic. Uh, but the word Catholic is not talking about the Roman Catholic Church. 
The word Catholic means universal, right? right? It, it means everywhere, people everywhere. To say I believe in the Holy Catholic Church is to say I have been brought out, set apart. Jesus has set me apart to belong to God's people here, there, and everywhere. I belong to a spiritual house. Past, present, future, here, there, everywhere. God has made me part of His exclusive people. I belong to the church universal. And so there's no such thing as a churchless Christian. You know, it's like those of you today in this room who belong to army. If you know, you know. There's no such thing as a BTS fan who is not part of army, right? The Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, Faith chapter 25 uh, on the church puts it like this, right? There is, there is no such thing as a churchless Christian. It puts it like this. The Catholic or universal church is invisible, spiritual. It consists of all God's elect who have been, are, or ever will be gathered into one under the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Every Christian who's put their faith in Jesus actually belongs to the invisible church, the universal church, past, present, future, here, there, and everywhere. And because of that, because of that, it is very, very easy to believe that just because you belong to the one holy Catholic church, the universal church of Jesus, it's actually, believe, it's actually easy to then think that you do not need to be part of an actual physical church community. And so over the years at Grace Point, <clears throat> I've actually had people who will come up to me and say this to me in the gathering, in the church. Huge. I love being here, but I don't want to commit because I don't need to join an actual church community. Why? Because I'm part of God's larger church. I'm part of the universal church, the invisible church. And you know, theologically, you're right. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you're part of a spiritual house made up of living stones. You do belong to the universal church. Um, you know, you are. You're, you're not a churchless Christian. Across the world, believers from every generation, past, present, future, here, then, everywhere, you belong. It's true. There's no such thing as a churchless Christian. But I do want to say to you this morning that there is also no such thing as a churchless Christian life. There's no such thing as a churchless Christian life. A life where you are not physically gathering and committing yourself to a church community, a group of Christians who are visibly present and visibly gathering. The church experience, the church scene, the church witnessing. Because this is what happens. Notice if you read down 1 Peter 2, you read down to verse 9 and verse 12, the spiritual house is also expressed in an actual physical gathering that meets. Now, notice the, the, the movement in 1 Peter 2. You go down to verse 9, verse 12. It says, But you're a chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, God's special possession. In other words, you're holy and set apart, right? You're set apart for Him. Why? So that you may declare the praises of Him. Right, what He's done, how He saved you. Right, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. <clears throat> and then verse 11 says, Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles in the world, abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. And then it says, As a spiritual house, live such good lives among the pagans, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits. You've got two things happening there, right? Proclaim, make known the good news of Jesus and live such good lives such that people actually experience the goodness of God in the way you live out in the world. And so, 
That's what's actually happening here. Peter's writing to a church that is experiencing pressure and persecution. And what Peter is doing, one uh, Peter 2, is he reminds the church of who they are and how they are to live out church in the world, what it means to be the people of God. And so he says, you're a spiritual house. Yeah, that's true. But then he also says, but you're a spiritual house that's meant to gather to do two things, to speak of his greatness and goodness and to live in a way that brings him glory. You see there? To declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light and to live such good lives in the world that people may see your good deeds and praise God. The spiritual house is not an invisible house. The spiritual house is not an invisible house. The spiritual house is expressed in a visible house. People living and gathered, right, as an actual people meeting around Jesus who saved them. It's expressed in an actual physical gathering of people with a distinct message and a distinct lifestyle. Did you hear that? With a distinct message and a distinct lifestyle. You can't have that if you just belong to a spiritual house. Some of you play sport, right? I know you say, oh, you know, I belong to, you know, uh, I look at Dan Chu at the back over there, right? You know, I, I belong, you know, my sporting team is the, uh, the bulldogs, the doggies. But if you pause for a moment with me, right? Sorry, Dan, to pick on you. Can, can you really be part of a sporting team when you're actually not physically playing the game with them? Good question to ask, isn't it? We, we do it vicariously because we want to belong, right? But you can't actually be part of a sporting team unless you actually physically gather together to play the game. Ever occurred to you? There's no such thing as an invisible sporting team. Same here, right? There's no such thing as an invisible, as an invisible church without an actual visible gathering that gives expression to that. You cannot be part of an invisible church without being part of a visible gathering that gives expression to that. There's no such thing as a churchless Christian, praise God, but there's also no, no such thing as a churchless Christian life. So, let me draw out three implications for us this morning. Here's number one. Three implications for us. Number one. The first one. There are implications for our relationships within, within the church community. If the church is, is a, a gathering that God has gathered through Jesus that brings us together, there are implications for the way you relate to the people around you, okay? The first thing I want to say is that the church is never going to be a perfect community. No community is perfect. Because God doesn't save perfect people. In fact, the church is not made up of good people. The church is not made up of good people, but very sinful people who believe they need saving. That's why they're here, right? They don't, they're not here because they think they're better than the world. They're here because they actually think they need saving. The basis of entry and acceptance into God's church isn't your good works, it's Jesus' work for you. And so, if you haven't already been deeply hurt by someone at Grace Point, you will be at some point. If you haven't already been deeply disappointed by people at Grace Point, you will be at some point. Which means that if you belong to a church community, you will have to, at some point, come to terms with disappointment and hurt within. You're going to have to deal with it. Uh, there will be hurt, there will be grief, there will be animosity, even hostility, that we will feel towards each other, right? Especially when we have been unjustly treated, unfairly taken advantage of, or even betrayed by the people around us. So here's the question that you really have to wrestle with, right? How do you deal with that? 
Because I suspect that in your heart of hearts, you really do not want to live with a cycle of ongoing hurt and a cycle of ongoing grief and animosity and hostility. Why? Because some of you have experienced this. It's tiring and it's crippling emotionally and physically and spiritually. So what do you do with that? Jesus says, if you've truly understood the gospel, what it means to belong, if you truly believe that, He's able to remove that crippling hurt, that crippling grief and animosity and hostility you feel. How is He able to do that? Well, you come back with me to Ephesians 2, verse 13 to verse 16. We read, by His blood, He brings peace between the two. By His blood, He brings peace between the two. Blood that He shed for you and for the one who has deeply hurt you. That's why later in Ephesians 4, you know, uh, in Ephesians 4 verse 32, Paul will unpack what, what I call life in community. How do you live in community as Christian people? He says, keep forgiving each other as God in Christ has forgiven you. Keep forgiving each other as God in Christ has forgiven you. Now, that means, you've got to take a step back now, right? That means until there is forgiveness in your life, there can be no freedom. Until there is forgiveness in your life, forgiveness given and forgiveness received, there can actually be no freedom. Until there is forgiveness, there's going to be animosity and hostility. Until there is forgiveness, there will never be healing from our hurt and grief. Until there's forgiveness received, there will always be despair for the hurt you've caused others. Until there is, forgive, until there is forgiveness, there will be no peace. I'm not saying it's easy, so don't you know, hear me incorrectly this morning. I'm not saying, hey, you know, it's easy to forgive. It's not. But I am saying, if that's where you are at, that is how healing starts. Right? That's how healing starts. How peace and reconciliation starts. Which means, at some point, you're going to have to actually get on that path. If not, you're just going to live in a crippling state of hurt and grief and animosity and hostility. That's why I shared at Vision Sunday last year. Many of you were here at Vision Sunday. I've shared at our leaders' retreat, you know, our leaders' summit last week. A lot of the community group leaders were there. I shared that if the good news of Jesus has truly filled your heart, then one of the things that should happen is the belief that our fellowship, our relationship, our communion with each other is not on the basis of the other person's performance or works or my performance or works, my relationship with you should not be based on your personal success or failure, you making up for your sins, me making up for my sins so that we'll be friends, the other person working to earn my forgiveness. No. If in my heart I've truly understood the good news of Jesus, it means I have also come to terms with the fact that my relationship to you, your relationship to me, is based on Jesus dying for you and for me, both our sins. And so we need to remember that we belong to Jesus and to each other because of Jesus. And so there will be hurt. You will cause others. Others will cause you. There will be disappointment. You cause others. Others will disappoint you. And until you anchor your fellowship, your communion in the gospel, your heart will never let go of anger. Your heart will never let go of resentment. Your heart will never allow itself to forgive the pain others have caused you. But the reverse is also true, isn't it? Your heart will never allow itself to receive forgiveness for the pain you've caused others. It works both ways. 
If in my heart of hearts I truly believe that we belong to Jesus and to each other because of Jesus, then I should actually believe, as the creed says, in the forgiveness of sins. That's why it says, I believe in the one holy Catholic Church. I believe in the communion of saints. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Do you? Do you really? I always say this because it's so true, you know. In his book, Life Together, Bonhoeffer, which you hear me quote a lot, if it's not C.S. Lewis, it's Bonhoeffer. Um, You know, Bonhoeffer writes, right, in this little book, Life Together, he says, I am a brother to another person through what Jesus did for me and for them. The other person uh, has become a brother or sister to me through what Jesus did for him or her. What determines our relationship, our fellowship, our communion is what that man or woman is by reason of Jesus and his work. Our community with one another consists solely in what Jesus has done for both of us. I have community with others, and I shall continue to have it only through Jesus Christ. The more genuine and deeper our community becomes, the more everything else between us will recede. Grace will triumph. Forgiveness will overflow. The more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and His saving work become the one and the only thing that is vital between us. I'm pretty sure some of you have practical questions about this. Uh, let me remind you, we do have a Q&A after church. Uh, I'll be down here. If you want to stay for Q&A, stay for Q&A. Uh, those of you who don't stay for Q&A, uh, you know, there's, there's morning tea uh, as coffee being made, pour-over coffee or matcha lattes, uh, which is a special for the day. Please feel free to join us for morning tea after church, right? But the Q&A will be down here. Second, second implication is then your outlines. The church is both a spiritual and actual physical gathering, right? Uh, which means that you can't be part of the church universal if you're not part of the church visibly, physically gathered. Why? Because we gather to do two things, to proclaim and to make Jesus known. Now, you've got to listen very carefully because, especially those of you who have a very, very low view of church, we live in a culture where Christians have a very, very low view of church. They just come and go as they please, right? There's no such thing as a churchless Christian. You belong to the universal church, but there's no such thing as a churchless Christian life. Why? Churchless Christian living is what I call invisible Christian living. Can't be seen. Can't be experienced. So to say I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, forgiveness of sins, without actually committing yourself and binding yourself to a people, it's like saying, I believe in the church invisible, but not the church visible. It's like saying, I can belong, but never be present. Right? I can enjoy fellowship without an actual relationship with people. I can serve God's people without actually being around God's people, yeah, which is crazy, right? I can, I can worship God, enjoy corporate worship, but actually not actually have people around me present. I can be part of a witnessing community, but I'm not standing alongside others witnessing in the world. So that's absurd. That's why I say there's no such thing as a churchless Christian, but there's also no such thing as a churchless Christian life. And I suspect that's a challenge to some of you. And you need to hear that this morning. But here's the last thing. Probably this is the biggest thing. The Christian church is a very exclusive community. So maybe you're a, a guest and a visitor here today and, and you go, wow, the Christian church sounds very exclusive. And you got it right. It is very exclusive. To say I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, is to say to the world, positively, I belong to God and His people. 
Negatively, it's saying, well, not everyone actually belongs to God and His people, right? But I want to say to you, it's exclusive, but it's not an exclusive belief that's spoken of or affirmed in pride, but humility. Because to say I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, uh, I belong to God's people, past, present, future, here, there, everywhere. I believe in the communion of saints, we belong to each other. I believe in the forgiveness of sin. It comes from a place of humility because it's saying, it's, I belong not because of my work. I, I belong not because of my morality or my performance. I belong to God and His people because of Jesus and His saving work in my life. And we belong to each other because of Jesus and His saving work in our lives. And so the Christian church is a very exclusive community because it says you cannot be part of God's community without trusting Jesus and His saving work. So it's exclusive, isn't it? If you don't trust Jesus and saving work, you can't be part of His church. But because of that, I also want to say to you, it also means that the Christian church is also one of the most, in fact, the most inclusive community in the world. Let me tell you why. And I've said this, you know, I think two years ago I said this. This is what makes Christianity different from religion. Okay? Christianity says, here's the good news. Jesus was crushed and judged in your place for your sin, your guilt, your shame, so that you might be included and restored, so that you might have forgiveness. That's what Christianity says. And so, uh, Christianity is good news about what Jesus does. It's never about our work or your work, right? Uh, Religion actually says, this is what you must do to belong, to be known, be loved. This is what you must do to be included, to be welcomed, to be saved. And so religion always says, hey, you keep the commandments. If not, you can't be part of our community. Uh, Religion says, walk the path of duty, knowledge, and devotion. That's Hinduism. Religion says, live the eightfold path. That's Buddhism. Religion says, live by the five pillars. That's Islam. And if you cannot do that, you cannot be part of this community. You can't be included. You can't be saved. You can't be forgiven. Now, I'm going to take a step back right now. Let me ask you this question. Which is more inclusive? Which is more inclusive? The good news of Christianity or the demands of religion? Which is far more embracing and available? The good news of Christianity or the demands of religion? Religion is not very inclusive. In fact, religion is very exclusive because it says only people who are good enough, moral enough, strong enough are included and accepted. You can't be part of church until you meet our standards. Only those who can meet the demands of religion are saved, right? That's not very inclusive. What about those who fail? Those who are not good? Those who can't keep the commandments? Now, secularism is also not very inclusive. You know that? Secularism is not very inclusive because secularism says, unless you agree with us, unless you accept our Western ways of thinking and doing things, unless you perform and meet our standards academically or, you know, or performance-wise, you are, you're excluded. We'll marginalize you. We'll deprive you. We'll humiliate you un- unless you are like one of us. Now, that's not inclusiveness. That's very exclusive. That's intolerance. I say that's cultural imperialism. Christianity is far more inclusive because it says anyone who trusts Jesus can be saved. Anyone who trusts Jesus can actually be part of His people. It's for Jews and Samaritans, half-Jews. It's for Gentiles, non-Jews. Go home this week, uh, read Acts 8. Acts 8, you discover discover one of the first people welcomed and included into the early church community. One of the first people included into the church community. And he is culturally and ethnically, and he's physically different. Uh, you discover he's a black 
sexually altered Ethiopian eunuch. And he comes to faith and he's included, basically, into the people of God. Christianity is far more inclusive culturally because it doesn't belong to any one culture or ethnicity or social group. It's good news for all cultures and all ethnicities because it's not telling you to adopt certain Jewish practices to be a Christian or to be European or English to be a Christian. It's good news because you're not called to stop being like, you know, uh, from Egypt or Chinese or Vietnamese. Or, we're simply called to trust in Jesus' saving work. That's the reason why if you study faith, what you'll discover is that Christianity is far more international in its reach globally, right, and culturally than any other religious faith. It's far more inclusive of culture and ethnicity than any other religious or secular worldview. You know, I often hear this, right? One of the common objections, one of the most common objections to Christianity is that it's cultural, right? It's like, you know, Terence over there. Terence, you, you only believe in God, right? Because it's your culture. You've been brought up in a Christian family. But if you were born in India, you would be Hindu, Terence, or Philippines, right? I don't know what you would be then, right? Or, or if, you were, if, you were, if, you were, if you were born in Asia, right, you would be Buddhist because it's part of your culture. If you were born in the Middle East, you'd be, you'd be Muslim because it's part of your culture. And so this is the argument I often hear from the secular. People only believe in God because they're simply following their culture's belief. Have you heard that? I'm sure many of you have heard that, right? Oh, you, only, you believe in God because you're following your culture's belief. Now, it's really interesting because research from the Pew Center uh, of Religion and Public Life shows that to be true. The majority of Muslims, 98%, do live in the Asia-Pacific region, the Middle East and North Africa. The majority of Hindus, 97%, live in the three world's uh, Hindu-majority countries, India, Mauritius, Nepal. The majority of Buddhists, 99%, they live in Asia. And so you begin to realize that all the world religions... They are geographically located. But then not many people know this, right? Secularism, agnosticism, atheism is also geographically located because it's also the product of culture. Where do we find the majority of people who have a secular worldview? In places where there's been no history of uh, religion, like China, and in places where secularism is being, secularism is being pushed. Where's that? Europe. North America. And so what's really interesting is that people who are not religious, who are secular in the worldview, also believe what they believe because they're the product of their culture. And so if you're a secular person, you are also simply following your culture's belief. Now, I'm going to take a step back because then you ask, what about Christianity, right? Now, it's interesting because the research actually shows that Christians are the most evenly dispersed group globally and culturally. You've got equal numbers living in Europe, 25%, Africa, 23%, North America and South, and South America, 36%, Asia, 13%, about 20% now and growing. And, and what you discover, there is no single dominating ethnic group or culture that owns Christianity, right? You know, when people say Christianity is a Western thing, what do you mean a Western thing? That's nonsense, right? right what, which culture are you talking about? Which culture owns Christianity? Whose culture are you talking about? Because the sociological evidence actually shows that Christianity is the only worldview that transcends geography and culture. Richard Borkham, a New Testament scholar, he writes, whatever defines Christianity as a historical uh, belief, cultural uniformity, cultural homogeneousness is not such a feature. You cannot accuse Christianity of coming out of one culture. Almost certainly, it says, Christianity exhibits more cultural diversity 
than any other religion that must, and that must say something about it. So Christianity, you discover then, is, that's the reason why it's far more inclusive culturally because it doesn't belong to one culture or ethnicity. It's good news for all people because it's not telling you to stop being Indian or Chinese or Vietnamese or French or Korean or African, right? Whatever your ethnicity or culture is, it's open to embracing all people. That's why, you know, when you join a com- church community, you find such diversity of people. People who listen to Blackpink, people who listen to Death Metal, people who listen to Mozart, and then... Yes, Jaden, people who listen to 80s pop music. We're simply called to trust in Jesus and His saving work for us to be included, for us to belong, for us to be known, for us to be loved and welcome into His church. Imagine that. To have a community that will welcome you, include you, a place where you can belong, be known and be loved, not because you're good enough or because you've performed, a place where forgiveness is possible. Isn't that what we're all looking for? Whether you're Christian or whether you're a secular person. And the good news is that Jesus has made it possible. And I do hope here at Grace Point we'll actually be that sort of community, a welcoming presence for all who come, a place of belonging for all, a place where you can be known and loved, a place where people who come will actually find forgiveness and grace in Jesus who loved them and died for them and for you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that because of Jesus, we have a place of belonging, a place where we can be known and love, a place where forgiveness is possible. We want to acknowledge this morning that we're not a perfect church, and that's why we need your help. Fill our hearts with the good news of Jesus who died for our sins and the sins of those in our church community who have grieved and hurt us. Help us forgive if we have been grieved and hurt. Help us receive forgiveness if we have grieved and hurt. So that together we might truly affirm that we belong to Jesus and to each other as a church community. Amen.